Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Here we are, episode 105. On the other side of spooky season. Coming at you with Malignant from 2021. I've been wanting to do this one for so long. This was nothing like I expected it to be. I'm so excited to talk about what I expected it to be versus what it actually was, because I've heard a lot of flack about this movie being like, this was like so bad, whatever. (laughs) But like, once you hear about like some of the stylistic things that James Wan did purposefully, it's just so fun. Something else I also appreciated was I saw James Wan's name in the credit as this intense music was playing over the opening credits. And I was like, this is giving Saw. (laughs) I was so Saw, like this iconic banger that opens up the film. I loved it. And literally, like, he always picks the most badass people to do his composing because I have been listening to the malignant theme on the way to work all week. (laughs) Just to get yourself pumped up. Just to get myself pumped up. (laughs) Where Your Walls Fall by Cell Dweller. On my Spotify wrapped. Probably not. But like, <laughs> but what if it is? At least on the is. playlist. At least on the cultivated playlist. It's probably going to be like that Tom York song was oh, off fuck. the Suspiria remake last year. The Suspiriorum. It's probably going to be like that. Dude, I kind of want to get to your level where I'm listening to horror movie scores on the way to work. I don't know that you want to be like me. Mm, well, I'll give it a little bit more thought. And we'll see if I hit play on that Spotify playlist. We'll see. All right, so starting out with our ladies, we have Madison. She is played by Annabelle Wallace. She is an English actress known for Annabelle, LOL, TV roles in The Tudors and Peaky Blinders. I love that you added her credit for The Tudors in here. Just for you. Thank you so much. And then we also have a young Madison played by McKenna Grace. And she is in literally so much, including a young Theo Crane in The Haunting of Hill House, Annabelle Comes Home, Amityville Awakening, a 2018 remake of The Bad Seed, a 2015 remake of Frankenstein, and so many TV roles, including The Young and the Restless, Designated Survivor, Fuller House, The Handmaid's Tale, Young Sheldon, Friend of the Family, and some Disney XD and Marvel roles. She is also a pop rock musician. She is also 17 years old. This young woman makes me feel like I have not been using my time wisely. (laughs) Wow, good for her. But I loved Theo in A Haunting of Hill House. That's uh, Kate Siegel's younger part. Mm. So like best character. She was great in that. We also have Sydney. She is played by Maddie Hassan. She is an American actress known for her TV roles in Impulse and Twisted. We have Regina Moss. She's played by Nicole Brianna White. She is a American actress known for TV roles in Muscle and the Black Mafia family. Then we have Dr. Florence Weaver. She's played by Jacqueline McKenzie. She is an Australian film and stage actress known for Deep Blue Sea, the 4400, and lots of Australian TV, movie, and stage works. And then we have Serena, who is played by Jean Louisa Kelly. She's an American actress and singer known for TV roles in Yes, Dear, and various other works. And then we have a young Serena who is played by Madison Wolf, and she is in The Conjuring 2, Devil's 2, and TV roles in True Detective and Zoo. Lots of ladies. Lots of ladies. Yeah. And I also love that at least two of them have younger roles. Oh, yeah. Like, I love, you know me, I love a nonlinear timeline, mm-hmm. and I love that aspect of this film as well. So as we alluded to, this is directed by James Wan. We know him from the Saw franchise, the Conjuring franchise, the Insidious franchise, the Annabelle franchise, Dead Silence, Megan, the soon-to-be upcoming Megan 2.0. The screenplay is by Akila Cooper. She is known for Megan, the upcoming Megan 2.0, The Nun 2, and Hellfest. 
And the story is by J.T. Petty and Ingrid Bisu. And Ingrid Bisu is a Romanian actress, producer, and screenwriter who plays Winnie the crime scene photographer in the movie, which is a supporting role, and is married to James Wan. Cute! So she helped him write the story. And there's a lot of cool, like, behind-the-scenes stuff of those two together, like, crafting the story, and it's very sweet. Awesome. So in terms of the film style, I alluded to this earlier. So there are a lot of elements in this that make it borderline fantastical, borderline supernatural, borderline campy. And that is partially due to the film being made in spirit of a giallo. We talked about this a lot with Suspiria. And people will argue whether Suspiria is giallo or not because Dario Argento is a giallo filmmaker. Okay. Suspiria doesn't necessarily have all of the elements of a giallo, but James Wan made Malignant as kind of like a, hey, I made this film studio a lot of money and now I want to do my fun creative thing. So he tried to make it in the spirit of this. So this comes from the wiki. In Italian cinema, giallo is a genre of murder mystery fiction that often contains slasher, thriller, psychological horror, sexploitation, and less frequently, supernatural horror elements. This particular style of Italian-produced murder mystery horror thriller... (laughs) How many genres can you say? (laughs) All of them were listed, by the way. Um, Usually blends the atmosphere and suspense of thriller fiction with elements of horror fiction, such as slasher violence and eroticism, similar to French fantastique genre, and often involves a mysterious killer whose identity is not revealed until the final act of the film. The genre developed in the mid to late 1960s, peaked in popularity during the 1970s, and subsequently declined in commercial mainstream filmmaking over the next few decades, though examples continue to be produced. It was a predecessor to, and had significant influence on, the later American slasher film genre. Oh, so you mean Scooby-Doo? Yeah. (laughs) No wonder I fucking love Scooby-Doo so much. (laughs) Scooby-Doo is giallo, actually. (laughs) And they're called giallo because in Italian, giallo means yellow. And they used to be these small crime novels sold with the newspapers. They were like little giallos. So like little crime, like short novellas um, were shortly called giallos, Mm -hmm. which is what kind of named the theme. And I'm not an expert on giallo. I'm not filmy like that, but I knew enough, especially just due to the way that the film is colored. Like there's a lot of lights and colors. Like it's very much how Suspiria was, where the vibe, the theme, the whodunit aspect was certainly all very present here. So you ready to get into it? I am. All right. How do we open? So we open on Simeon Research Hospital in the year 1993. I have to say, this opening shot was incredible. This research hospital is huge. It has a lot of gothic architecture characteristics. It's dark, it's storming, it's spooky looking, and it's literally on the waterfront. It looks more like a castle than a research hospital, but that is where we are. We are introduced to Dr. Florence Weaver. She's in the middle of recording an update on a patient named Gabriel when someone rushes in to report that Gabriel has gotten loose. Weaver immediately jumps into action, following this person through the hallways to find a couple dead bodies on the floor. Gabriel has violently attacked these people. They grab like some kind of sedative gun so they can sedate this person. Somebody originally tries to use it, but he gets his arm brutally broken. (laughs) Look, if you want to play a drinking game, (laughs) take a shot every time somebody gets a compound fracture (laughs) in this movie because... This would be shot number one. This man gets his arm completely broken in a very visceral graphic way. So Weaver is a badass. She grabs the gun. She goes in and she sedates Gabriel herself. 
she and another person are able to get him, strap him to a chair, and she tells him that he's been a bad, bad boy. We don't see Gabriel's face at all, by the way. He's just kind of like an entity we know is there, but we don't see his face. We don't see any of his characteristics. We're focusing strictly on watching Weaver as she's navigating this situation. The only thing we do see is that when Gabriel's body is being dragged, it does look like a young person. I took to be like a young person because they have like these panda socks on. And yes! Like the ankles are being dragged. And I'm like, that doesn't necessarily look like something a grown person would be wearing that has the ability to cause all these compound fractures as you very astutely. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so like, astute. <laughs> like this is like a small esterified type yes. of villain. Well, it's kind of giving, because later we see Gabriel with like this long hair in front of their face and it's very much giving Samara from... Or Samara from the ring, yeah. So anyway, also as Weaver is speaking to Gabriel, the electric is starting to act up as if Gabriel is somehow in charge of the electric around them. And he also starts fucking with the radio waves and speaking to Weaver and her associates through the radio, saying that he'll kill them all. Apparently this is the first time Gabriel has spoken, let alone through the fucking radio, which is insane. It feels very much like because of this ability to speak through the radio, it has me wondering, is this some kind of extraterrestrial being? It's very vague in the beginning, but there are so many questions around who Gabriel is. But Weaver admits to her colleague that she wanted to help Gabriel, but she was wrong. This person is beyond help. And it's time to cut out the cancer, Mm -hmm. which that line will come back. Don't worry about it. It will come back. And this is where we cue the opening credits. Oh, my God. Uh, Love it. So good. What a banger this soundtrack is. And we have a lot of cancer, surgery, electricity-centered imagery. Case files, a lot of notes stating that Gabriel can talk through speakers and manipulate lights. If you're looking for an explanation as to why that is... I'm sorry you're never going to get it. No. They kind of leave that one to just be what it is, which I think is fun to talk about. But like, <laughs> he just kind of, he's giving very much poltergeist. Yeah. Um, where he can just like fuck around with some waves. We don't exactly know why, but it's just his thing. A surgery was performed on a patient named Emily. And that is shown in the case file. And that will come back later. We are then moving setting. Did they say how many years later? 27 years later. 27 years later. <laughs> A car pulls up to a house and a very pregnant woman gets out, enters her house, and climbs the stairs of her house to admire a nursery. You could tell that she's in pain, she's groaning, and she has a lot of labored movements. And she enters her bedroom to find her partner scrolling his phone and watching TV. Yeah, Derek. Derek. And we can already tell that Derek's a fucking ass, and it doesn't take long to reveal that. He notes that she's home early, and they kind of get into an argument as to whether she should be working or not, but as she implores him to turn the TV off because she wants to rest, he gets aggressive and says, how many times do I have to watch my children die inside of you? You're breaking my heart. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as far as a plot point goes, this is alluding to several miscarriages, but it's also showing Derek's, at least at this point, verbally abusive behavior towards her. Yeah, and trigger warning, it gets a lot more abusive in the next few scenes. So as Maddie challenges him, saying, like, you can't keep making me feel like this, you can't keep doing this, he becomes enraged and pushes her against a wall where she smacks the back of her head against the wall, drawing blood. He's immediately apologetic and goes to get her ice, but she locks him out of the bedroom, still bleeding and in a lot of pain. 
Derek does an abusive, manipulative monologue on the other side of the door about how he's going to get better and he'll change and all of these types of things. But she just takes this moment to sit in her isolation and shake and cry. And we're immediately identifying with Maddie. We feel really bad for her. She's in a bad situation. So that night, Maddie is asleep in the master bedroom, presumably still behind that locked door. And we see Derek is asleep downstairs on the sofa. He awakens to some muffled rattling noises, which turns into the blender in the kitchen completely turning on. I loved this because if there is any appliance that I don't want acting up, and I think this has to do with maybe watching Your Next or Unfriended, but yeah. like blenders specifically, like that is terrifying. Mm, it gives me a new appreciation for like my toaster. Surprise. Or- <laughs> like, I'm so glad. I don't know. Toasters are much less intimidating than blenders, I think. So anyway, the fucking blender turns on. He turns it off and right away, oh God, we hear the opening of the refrigerator and the refrigerator light flood over Derek's figure. He turns around, sees the fridges open, shuts the door. And then all of a sudden the TV turns on back in the living room. So he goes in the living room, turns it off. And a couple times at this point, he's consciously calling Maddie, Maddie thinking that she's awake. Oh, while the TV is on, though, before he turns it off, the light from the TV illuminates a shadow figure sitting on the sofa. And this is like a full-grown, adult-sized shadow figure sitting on the sofa. But when he flips the lights on, the figure disappears. There's a little bit more investigating where Derek is obviously freaking out. I mean, I would be sobbing at this point, personally. But he's all of a sudden approached from behind and killed. It looks like at this point by his head being slammed against the wall, which seems... Intentional. Yeah, retribution. But then the scene cuts out and we cut to Maddie upstairs where she awakes from what seems like a dream that she had just had about her husband, Derek. Yeah, Maddie wakes up, notices more blood on her pillow, and I'm like, girl, go get a concussion test, please. Yeah, what the... That's another thing. (laughs) Maddie Madison, you should have gone to the hospital, my girl. You need some stitches. You need to see if you have a concussion. Isn't that the one thing you're not supposed to do when you have a concussion is go to sleep? Take a fucking nap? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, okay, Maddie. She hears some thudding from downstairs, gets up to investigate, and finds Derek's body contorted and very much dead on the ground. It looks like someone twisted his head. Right round, baby, right round. Florida. Florida. And Maddie sees a shadowy figure with dark, long hair rise from behind him. And you could tell, like, the way that this figure moves. Like, it looked like it was crouched up, and it's almost like it's climbing from beyond Derek's body. So very tarantula-like, very Slenderman kind of like, and flings the door shut as she tries to run out the front door. And I wrote amazing camera work on the stairs. This reminds me a lot of the night house with a lot of the panning, the imagery of just watching Maddie run throughout her house, but being able to see the entire architecture of the house, Mm. almost like there's not a roof on the building. I don't know. James Wan's a fucking genius and it's filmed amazingly, but Maddie runs back into her room and is trying to keep the door closed, but the door flings open and she smacks the back of her head again on the floor, knocking herself out. Cut to police. There are several police cars, an ambulance on scene. There's a ton of commotion. And this is where we meet Detective Kakoa Shaw and his, I guess, co-detective or like a partner, Regina Moss. They have some dialogue here in the beginning. It seems like it's early hours of the morning. There was a breaking and entering. There's a murder. But Maddie, the woman who was found unconscious upstairs, has survived. And she is in the hospital receiving treatment for her injuries. But basically, the scene seems to serve that they're investigating a breaking and entry case with a murder. 
Maddie has lived and that obviously there are some detectives on the scene who are confounded by the reality of the situation. But we see them see Derek's body and of course make the assessment that well, who is the woman who is this our is CSI? Winnie. This is Winnie. Okay, Winnie. Who is um, Ingrid Bisu, who is James Wan's wife. Oh my God. And she's like the best character in the movie. She, so she's kind of assessing the scene and she basically explains the kind of injury that Derek has sustained might be possible in a serious car accident, but to have that inflicted on him by another human seems so unusual and impossible almost. Is this where she makes the comments about the handprints on his neck being upside down? I think there's a autopsy scene later that mm, reveals that, okay. but it's kind of blink and miss it. So like, yes, the handprints that are on Derek's body are upside down. Oy, oy, oy. Nothing is making sense, basically. So Maddie wakes up in the hospital with her sister Sydney at her side, and Sydney tries to gently explain that someone broke into her house, there has been an accident, and Maddie cries that she was so scared, and there's a pause, and she says, for the baby. So she wasn't scared for Tarek. I know. <laughs> for herself, but just for the baby. And when she goes to touch her stomach, she notices that it is smaller. And Sydney says that they really tried, but they couldn't save the baby, mm. and Maddie is beside herself. This has happened time and time again, and she is just broken at this news. So a couple of days later, Detective Shaw arrives with too many stripes in his ensemble. <laughs> I was like, what do you, what does that mean? No, it's just me trying to make a joke because he wears the most mismatched suits ever. I still love him. He's a cutie. He is a cutie. And Winnie certainly thinks so. Sydney certainly oh, thinks so. Oh yeah, he's got the ladies lining up for him. Oh mm-hmm. my God. And he kind of looks like James Bond, which I think is very funny. Oh. Um. Anyway... He goes to ask Maddie some questions, but she's fairly catatonic and not really wanting to communicate. I wrote, Sydney is hilarious and also a princess at Family Planet. She is like, she's dressed up as a princess. She's dressed up as like a knockoff Cinderella. She is like a party princess that you would send to like a five-year-old's birthday party. And she is like comedic relief we need in this movie. She's so fucking funny. Wait, but so is Regina Moss. Regina's also very funny. Winnie's also very funny. Yes. Everybody's really showing up and knowing exactly what to do Mm -hmm. with like the tone of this movie. So context and lack of HIPAA allows Kakoa to tell Maddie, you've had three miscarriages in the past two years, but Sydney didn't know this. Okay, HIPAA violations aside, there's a lot of things that Maddie was keeping separate from her family about Derek. Derek has been a wedge between Sydney and Maddie's relationship, and now they want to grow closer again. This is where we get the context where Kokoa goes back to Regina and heard that there was no sign of forced entry. So now eyes are kind of on Maddie and also the weird thing with the fingerprints being upside down. Like, how could this murder have occurred? Two weeks later, Sydney drops Maddie back off at home. She says that she can stay with Maddie. Is Maddie sure she even wants to go back into this house? But Maddie says it's her house and she doesn't want that taken away from her too. So she goes into the house to stay there by herself. That night, she's looking out the window when she sees the street light across the street burn out. But she sees, oh, this moment. She sees a spooky shadow slowly start to materialize in the middle of the street as her eyes adjust to the new darkness. What does that remind me of? Is that hereditary? What's yes. the movie that fucking does that? Oh yes, my God. Yes, Tony Collette in the corner of the room. Yes. And the shot is so long. And like, we are adjusting to seeing this figure as she is adjusting to seeing this figure. And something I really appreciate about Miss Maddie is that she immediately runs through her house. And what does she do? Shut all the blinds and curtains. But here's something I didn't appreciate about (laughs) Miss Maddie. Uh Uh-oh. 
She was just getting out of the shower and her front door was open. Like it was not locked. And I'm like, bitch, you were showering in Home Alone and that door was not double locked. Oh, it wasn't even locked? No. She put that deadbolt on and I'm like, girl, what? Anytime I shower, everything is drawn, double locks all the time. Doesn't matter. Like what the fuck is going on? But as she goes and closes all the blinds, there's some more really cool, I called like hereditary shots where we're seeing the interior of the house. And she locks herself in my room and says, it's all in my head. There's nobody there. It's all in my head. The next morning, she gets to work fortifying her house. She literally gets her drill, her hammer, her nails, her screws. She goes around boarding up her house. And then Sydney arrives later and tries to key in, but she can't get access. Maddie is upstairs looking at the damage on the wall from earlier that was caused by her head wound when Derek shoved her. We have a little jump scare moment where Sydney's face all of a sudden appears in the window. She has climbed up to the roof to try to get access into the house. Maddie lets her in. She says, mom made a casserole. I couldn't carry it up with me. Like, why can't I get into the house? Her inflection is so funny. She's like, mom made a casserole. I could not climb with it. So it is outside. (laughs) This is so fucking funny. She's so nonchalant about scaling the side of this house. Now that they're in the bedroom, Maddie points out to Sydney the damage on the wall that was caused by Derek shoving her. And Sydney is like, look, I know no one deserves to die this way, but fuck him. (laughs) Which is like, I loved that line. And then Maddie reflects on her pregnancy and wanting to know what it's like to have a blood connection with someone, which of course confuses Sydney because Sydney is her sister. But then that is when Maddie reveals to Sydney that she was adopted when she was eight years old before Sydney was born, but she has no memories of her prior life. It's also just like hilarious face acting on Sydney's part where <laughs> we're pushing in on her reaction. And I'm like, girl, you look nothing alike. No. Like we're talking Maddie, like brown hair, brown eyes. Sydney is blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm not saying those things can't coexist. Well, they're, I, they're facial structures as well. Like yeah. they just don't, their heights. Like nothing alike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they don't look anything alike. New character alert. We're seeing an older woman giving a historical tour of old Seattle. And as the tour ends, of course, lights begin flickering. We're underground, by the way. We are underground. (laughs) She goes to leave for the night and shutting the lights off as she goes, but she hears a clattering. She calls out, says, hey, we're closed, goes and approaches the dark hallway like a big idiot, like turn the lights back on. Why are you going into this hallway? And I wrote, this long hallway is giving barbarian. Like Mm. when she like moves the mirror and she's like going, I'm like, just turn a fucking light on. But no. (laughs) She (laughs) She wants to get out of there. Okay. She wants to leave. Well, exactly. But why are you investigating it? (laughs) If you want to leave, leave, but you're not. So she wises up and turns to leave after hearing more clattering. But as something is pursuing her, we're seeing this point of view chase scene and she turns the lights on in enough time to illuminate the hallway and see nothing. But then the lights flicker and there's a really awesome jump scare where she looks upwards and sees a figure launching down after her from the ceiling. And this is the same figure that we saw attack Derek earlier. She wakes up. At first, I thought she was strapped to the train tracks because we were very close to like the Seattle underground. But we realize she's strapped to the rafters of some kind of attic space. So like at like an inverted angle of like the A-frame of the rooftop, she is there with this figure A voice comes over the radio as this figure is there saying, I can't tell you how long I've waited for this. So indicating that this figure knows who this woman is, has been waiting a long time to see her. Then the figure says, first, Dr. Weaver. 
which if we remember is the doctor from the beginning of the movie who dealt with Gabriel and who I think at this point we're supposed to realize that this figure is Gabriel. Yes. Okay. So then we cut to Dr. Weaver's house. Is this when she gets a phone call? She gets the phone call mm-hmm. and it says, Dr. Weaver, it's time to cut out the cancer. Ooh! Ah! The call cuts out and Weaver revisits some of her old patient logs that she has meticulously organized in her personal library. She opens up one of the folders and holds up a picture that we don't see, but we see her look at. And then we cut back to Maddie's house. She's getting some laundry together when shit starts acting up again. As she descends the stairs, it looks like she sees a, like a little, I wrote a little menace run across the floor. But again, it has like that dark shadowy presence like we've seen Gabriel have, but a little version. Then she gets to the laundry room and we hear electric screeching sounds again. And we see her head start to bleed. She reaches up, touches her head, looks, sees blood. And then as she opens the front-facing laundry door, she sees Dr. Weaver's face appear in the reflection of the laundry door, which is so fucking creepy. And this woman screams at her to get out of her house. But Maddie's like, this is my house. (laughs) But then we realize that this woman, Dr. Weaver, she's not actually in the room with Maddie. And we know this because slowly the room starts to shift and change around Maddie. It is so fucking cool. Mm -hmm. And I also found it really interesting that whenever Maddie is kind of experiencing these passenger moments where she's watching other things that are happening, it almost takes the theme of sleep paralysis, where it seems like a nightmare. Because if you've ever experienced sleep paralysis, it's that idea that your mind is awake, but your body is like sedated by sleep. So you can't move, but you're kind of lucid dreaming. And you might see, I don't know, the hat man in the corner or whatever the fuck, (laughs) whatever you're seeing, right? So Maddie is now sitting in Dr. Weaver's house watching a static TV screen with a voice that says, time to cut out the cancer. And she watches as Gabriel throws Dr. Weaver around the room and he takes one of Dr. Weaver's awards. And this is the like medical symbol with the spear and the two snakes. I just looked it up. It's called the caduceus or caduceus. It's a medical symbol where it's essentially a long sword or spear with two snakes intertwined around it. He takes that and uses it as a blade and is chasing her, throwing her around the kitchen. Dr. Weaver saying, what do you want from me? And he says, to show you what the cancer has become. Mm. And Maddie watches as Gabriel pummels Dr. Weaver to death, stabbing her repeatedly with this trophy. And then Maddie wakes up in her own house on the floor, head bleeding in the daylight. So then we cut to the CSI team investigating Weaver's murder scene. And as they do so, they find a picture, the picture that Weaver was looking at previously. And looking at it, we can tell that this is a picture of Maddie as a child. This young girl has the same iconic long brown hair with the blunt bangs. I picked up on this right away, but it doesn't seem like Detective Shaw does. But Winnie notices that half of the murder weapon is missing. The base that the original knife symbol was sitting on is still present, but the knife is gone or the knife piece is gone. Later, we cut to Gabriel back in the attic, modifying this top part of this award that had been given to Weaver and sharpening the blade to use later as a more serious weapon. The team takes all of Dr. Weaver's medical records that she has in her library to book for evidence and investigate to see if they can find out anything. But they realize in this moment that she specialized in child reconstructive surgery. And that is going to come up again later. 
Meanwhile, Maddie is getting sick and talking to Sydney as the TV news coverage covers Weaver's death. And Maddie tells Sydney, I didn't kill her, but I saw her die. It was him, and she saw him murdering her in her own house. And then we see another one of the old doctors from the previous opening scene answering the phone, talking to his colleague about Dr. Weaver's death, and says, listen, Simeon was a different time. Don't even bring that kind of stuff up. But the phone call cuts out due to static. He notices that there's a window open that wasn't before. And as he goes to close it, he notices wet footprints on the ground. Does not seem concerned enough. (laughs) Grabs a towel and cleans it up and closes the window to see Gabriel lurking behind him. He doesn't see Gabriel, but we we see see Gabriel. Gabriel. Good point, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Maddie is in bed, and she just, you know, is like flipping over in bed and opens her eyes and awakes to an elderly man asleep in the bed across from her, and she realizes, oh my God, she's being transported again. And this is Dr. Fields, by the way. Okay, yeah, I didn't know his name. Yeah, yeah, I looked it up because I was like, who is this man? Yeah, so she, all of a sudden she's sleeping with this older man, which I think this is kind of a, a little bit of a funny moment. A little bit, yeah. Like, obviously dark humor, but yes, you are 100% right. She knows something is about to go down. But first, oh my God, first, before she even sees Dr. Fields next to her, we see the red illumination mm-hmm. that we previously saw in Fields' apartment shining on her face. That feels like such a giallo moment. Like, that feels so Suspiria, like that red glow, the yes. use of that neon red light coming from the sign across the street from his apartment. I keep thinking of the nighthouse too, like, even just yes. her waking up from these nightmares, just that glow, that element, yes. that nightmarish quality is, like, very much there. Suddenly, she watches as Gabriel gets on top of Dr. Shields and stabs him to death repeatedly with the blade from Weaver's Award. The shadow, I kept calling him the shadow, but Gabriel, this shadowy person, looks at Maddie and we see his face for the first time. It is small, wrinkled. It looks very reptilian in nature. It seems like it has small eyes, a wrinkled complexion. It almost seems like the skin, though, is raw and scaly. It does not seem human, essentially. It also looks like it's emerging from something, like it's pushing out from something, which we'll get more context on later. She wakes up, obviously very distressed. Sydney runs in and tries to comfort her, tells her there's nobody there. But Maddie's head is bleeding again Mm -hmm. and says that he killed again. So Maddie decides to go to the detectives and say, like, hey, I'm seeing people get killed. And they're like, what? She's like, I have a location. So they go to the hotel that Dr. Fields was staying at and confirmed that, yes, this is a murder scene. Something fucking happened here. They go back to the station to try to sort up what the fuck is happening. And while she's in the bathroom, she gets a phone call from an unknown caller. This is Gabriel saying, hello, Emily. Mm. Your fake mother gave you the name Madison and your shitty marriage gave you the name Mitchell, but you'll always be Emily to me. You know who I am, even if you say I'm only in your head. You let them tell you that I wasn't real, that I was just a voice, and you believed them. Now I'm going to make them pay for what they did, one by one. And she says, Gabriel, no. Okay, you might know who this person is. And you could tell that she's even realizing as she says it as a reflex, like, why did I know that? Mm -hmm. And Gabriel says, see, deep down, you've always known. We're just getting started. And this is very scary. He's got this gravelly, scary-ass voice. (laughs) And she hangs up the phone shaken, so she gets Sydney, and they go to leave. Now, in a previous scene, we had seen Detective Shaw ask one of the people at the police precinct to age up the photo that he found of the little girl. 
And this is so fucking funny because when Detective Shaw asks this guy, like, hey, did you ever age over the photo? He was like, yeah, like I put it on your desk. <laughs> and it's just a photo of Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> like it is not even like something that looks like Maddie. It is just straight up a photo of Maddie. And Detective Shaw obviously did not realize that that was supposed to be the aged up photo. And even the guy's like, yeah, like you brought her in. You found her. Good job on you. And, <laughs> and Detective Shaw is realizing shit and like, oh my God, Emily is Maddie. Yes. So they immediately head to their mother's house. Maddie is asking her mother questions about if she remembers any details. And this is her adoptive mother. Yes, her adoptive mother. And, and But this is also- This is her mother, but yes, 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 yes. But it's also interesting too, because we can see how much Sydney looks like her mother. And then of course, again, another way we can see Maddie, you know, her features suggest that she is adopted. But anyway, Maddie is asking her mother questions about, do you remember anything about the adoption? Oh, I think Maddie asks, like, did I have a brother, like a sibling? Her mother says, I only remember that if there were siblings, the agency said they tried to keep them together. And then Maddie asks, then who the hell is Gabriel? And then her mother gets this knowing, scared look on her face. We cut to her mother putting in an old VHS titled Maddie's Ninth Birthday Party. And the three of them watch as we see a young Maddie sitting in front of her birthday cake about to be sang to on her birthday when she suddenly turns and talks to a presence unseen. She names the presence Gabriel and her mother in the video at this time asks if Gabriel is her imaginary friend, but Maddie insists that Gabriel is real and that he says her family is fake. Later, we cut to a different scene on the home video where Maddie is on a toy phone talking to Gabriel about the new baby coming. This is Christmas 94, and her mother is pregnant with Sydney at this point. Maddie asks Gabriel not to hurt her being the new baby, and her mother tells Maddie that she always thought Gabriel was made up and that he'd go away if Maddie got enough love, and she says she hopes she wasn't wrong. So it seems like Gabriel used to be a recurring issue in Maddie's youth, but Gabriel did eventually go away and definitely stopped being an issue as Maddie got older. But now who is this Gabriel and why is he coming back now? Meanwhile, Dr. Shaw finds a USB drive of Emily's files and he finds videos of Dr. Weaver talking about Emily who was in her care for seven years. In her little video diaries, she's saying how Emily was seeing visions and hearing thoughts from the devil and says that there is a team of doctors working on her, including herself, Dr. Fields, who passed away or who was killed, and then a Dr. Gregory. And this is the only living doctor who treated Emily left. So we kind of know that we need to be looking for him. Meanwhile, Maddie is at home brushing her teeth and she sees Dr. Gregory in the mirror. The lights flicker and fade and Gabriel steps out behind her. We're moving locations again. Meanwhile, Dr. Shaw arrives at Dr. Gregory's residence, is like scanning the house with his gun, is trying to find him, but finds Dr. Gregory bloody in his bathtub. He is too late. But he sees Maddie in the bathroom. Wait, he doesn't see Maddie, but she sees him. She sees him, but he sees somebody. Like, there's a figure. They're standing off. And she's like, oh, my God, it's me. But then Maddie screams, he's still here. That alerts Detective Shaw to look somewhere else in the bathroom. And then him and Gabriel fighting. So I don't exactly know what he thought he saw. I think that he came on the scene. It was like a fresh murder scene knew that it was possible the perpetrator was still in the house, but we knew the perpetrator was still in the house because Maddie was standing trying to speak through the vision that Gabriel is still in the right. house. Okay. I don't think he heard her, but Gabriel swoops down very quickly. And obviously then we get the most epic chase scene ever. It's so good. It's incredible. 
Yeah, so first there's a fight. Gabriel is trying to stab Shaw with his little golden knife, or big golden knife, I should say. Eventually, Shaw is able to shake Gabriel free, and Gabriel takes off running. And Gabriel, obviously at this point, has been established to have super strength. And we see him jump out of this apartment window and literally like jump down the different levels of the fire escape like he's playing fucking hopscotch. Oh my gosh. But vertically. (laughs) Shaw is obviously watching this happen and is like, how? He does his best to get down the fire escape. Does he? he, I think he does his best. He literally- It's it's nothing compared to Gabriel's best though. He (laughs) backflops on a dumpster. Like- He's like, well, I guess I'm going to jump. But when you suspect that somebody's going to jump from a fire escape onto a dumpster, it's like jump on your feet, but try to crouch so it doesn't hurt. He back flops <laughs> on the hard ass metal dumpster and like gets up running after this guy. I'm like, did you dislocate a disc? Well, he does something. It takes off on foot chasing Gabriel. Gabriel disappears by breaking like a basement entry window Shaw follows, and eventually they find themselves in the same Seattle underground that they had found from before. And this Seattle underground section, we know from the tour guide scene earlier, used to be the city, but then something happened with like a fire or something, like something was destroyed. So then they built over it and they thought, well, this will help protect us from floods anyway. So this is like old city Seattle, like 1800s fucking shit everywhere. Horse-drawn carriages, lots of weird underground shit happening. I'm like, are we about to find Jack and Rose? It's giving like dusty car garage on the Titanic. Yeah. It's really scary. And we just see the chase continue, continue. It feels like they keep descending down and down and down into these old city ruins. But eventually Shaw loses him and he pauses to take stock of where the fuck he is because immediately in my head, I was like, there's no way you're not lost. How do you get out of here? Also, like, Gabriel's a spider. Like, he's, like, climbing up the fucking walls like it's nothing. (laughs) And something to note about the way that Gabriel is moving is it's very disjointed. Again, I keep saying, like, tarantulin, but he is not a human being. He is running like there is a little bit of a disjointedness to him. He's crawling in an animalistic way, and things just look kind of backwards. But not in, like, a animalistic way that flows. Not with, like, the stealth and grace of a tiger, but, like you said, in this disjointed, unnatural way. Then Shaw almost gets run over by one of these old carriages and he continues his search and we see Gabriel on top of the roof of the carriage. He pounces, but Shaw is able again to fight him off. And then we see Gabriel disappear into a hole in the ceiling and the chase is over. The next day, Shaw and Regina are telling Maddie that all three of previous doctors are dead and that she was born as Emily and suggests that she should probably go through some hypnotherapy to see if she can recall some of these memories that she had claimed are lost to this point. So they all sit in a group session as Maddie is under hypnosis and recalls being in a hospital. She's better now because her new parents are here to adopt her, but he's still here too saying that Gabriel followed me home from the hospital. I'm the only one that can see him. So when he does something bad, I'm the one that gets in trouble. And we get flashbacks to a young Maddie crying and answering her kitty phone where Gabriel calls her and urges her to do something. She takes a knife and cuts a piece of a cake at Gabriel's insistence. Well, she almost cuts a piece of the birthday cake. Right. Okay. Yeah, you're very Mm -hmm. right. Which she had previously gotten in trouble for fucking with the icing of. Yes, you're right. And it seems like she didn't do that or didn't want to do that, but Mm -hmm. is, again, getting blamed for it. But as she goes to cut the piece of the cake, the surroundings disappear, and she wakes up to her holding the knife over her mother's stomach. Yes. (laughs) 
And then thankfully her mother then wakes up and screams and we know obviously survives this encounter. We have already met her. But that is showing, again, the severity to which these visions of Gabriel existed in Maddie's young life. They wake her up in the present and she says that she remembers more now. She remembers all her life waking up in strange places, but things haven't been like this before. Gabriel wanted to hurt Sydney because with her there, Maddie wouldn't need Gabriel anymore. And he was right. She forgot about him until she hit her head. Mm-hmm. And I love this. This is Regina at her best. She's like, wait, so are you saying that the killer is your imaginary friend? <laughs> it's like, but. Oh my God. This is like the best. <laughs> what the fuck? But just when it seems like no one is ever going to believe poor Maddie, we cut back to the captive in the like A-frame attic, cut herself free from her bonds get to the floor, try to move to escape, and then fall through the floor and end up on Maddie's fucking living room floor as everyone else is trying to figure out who the fuck Gabriel is. Gabriel and this woman were in Maddie's fucking attic. So then cut to a full-on investigation happening. (laughs) Maddie is at the back of a police car because it looks like she kidnapped a woman. There's an investigation going on in the attic. They find Gabriel's jacket hanging up on one of the rafters up there. It looks like Maddie is the killer. But, and I love this, Sydney is immediately trying to appeal to Shaw. She's like, my sister did not do this. Please, like something is going on. But then we cut to Maddie in the interrogation room. Regina is turning up the heat a little bit, you know, trying to get Maddie to confess to this whole thing. And it really does look like Maddie is totally guilty. But Maddie yells and says that she didn't do it. And as she does this, the electricity is fucked with and the lights completely go out in the interrogation room. And then the phone rings. It's Gabriel. He talks to Shaw on the phone and says that he wants his things back. But he says he's a figment of Maddie's imagination, and then he evil laughs. He says to Shaw, ask her what she used to call me, to which Maddie responds, the devil. Okay, so then this scene I find to be so useless and so funny. Well, the research scene? Well, yes, the research on Emily's adoption, and then also her driving out to the hospital. This is the ring. So the ring. It is the ring. Sydney's doing some more research on Emily's adoption, and she, in the night, drives out to (laughs) Simeon. And she goes exploring by flashlight in the abandoned old mental facility, as you do. She's looking where the storage room is, and she's sorting through these boxes and immediately finds Emily's file on the first try. She hears some clattering, and she's just like, okay, I'm good. And then she, like, somehow teleports back to her mother's house. Like, there has been no time that has elapsed in this thing, and we think that there's going to be a threat. We think Gabriel's going to come out. And literally, she just takes a drive, gets some evidence, and drives back. Simeon must literally be, like, 20 minutes away from her mom's house. It must be, like, a very commutable distance, because she is just like, what the fuck is going on? But again, it's very funny. Meanwhile, Maddie is in a shared jail cell with a big cast of characters. And I said, tag yourself. I'm the one with the blonde mullet in the purple pants. <laughs> there are so many characters. It, <laughs> like, it looks like a video game. Like, what the fuck is that video game called? Like, the Street Fighter one? 
That is a really good point because there are a lot of people in there that seem like they're wearing, like there's a woman in there who's wearing an outfit that's very like 1970s coded. Yes. Which is unusual because I think this is supposed to be happening in like 2021 yeah, when the movie yeah. came out, like present day, but it doesn't seem like everybody in there is existing on the same timeline, if that makes sense. Yeah, like there's a woman with an afro and like a leopard print onesie type situation, very 70s. And yes. I'm like what is going on? Yes. And then like the 1980s, like purple top, mullet hairdo, which I know mullets are back, which is great. They are back. And so are the 1970s really but you're right like this space feels extra liminal by the fact that these women don't feel like they are of the same time and then maddie and her like black turtleneck and her like long dark hair her bangs her bangs Uh, yeah it's interesting so we're back with Sydney and adoptive mom now, and they're watching these tapes, these files, and now we're met with a character named Serena. She is a young girl who is pregnant, I think, by a sexual assault, saying that like her parents don't approve because they think it's a sin, all these kinds of things. But connections start being made, and Serena is Maddie's or Emily's birth mother, and Maddie was, I guess, given birth to in this facility. But then I'm, like, confused as to, like, is Gabriel a thing because of the way that they were conceived, or is this just a weird parasitic teratoma that they come to talk about? Like, what are the things that are supposed to be drawn between the fact that Serena was brought into the care of these people? You know what I mean? I I don't know what they're trying to do. Well, maybe we can circle back to this once we reveal yeah, kind yeah. of like the, the, the thing, moment. Which okay. is coming in like yeah, yeah, two yeah. seconds. Yes. <laughs> it's coming. Either way, we see another tape of Dr. Weaver with Emily and promising that he won't wake up because he's sedated because they just want a private moment with Emily. Weaver is noting that Gabriel's been acting more aggressive and asking why. And Emily says, Gabriel's been telling me to hurt people and do bad things. Makes me stronger. He told me to kill that boy. Sometimes he speaks words and other times the words are in my head and then they aren't really words anymore, just feelings. He pretends to be nice, but he's the devil. But then Dr. Weaver decides I'm going to dope Gabriel up with some adrenaline to like wake him up. Yeah, she instructs the person holding the camera that I'm going to wake him up. And we're like, what? (laughs) Where is he? (laughs) And then we get some Voldemort ass shit. Oh, so Voldemort. Because flailing on the back of Maddie's head is a parasitic teratoma twin. Mm -hmm. This very skeletal, almost like those little like root people from Harry Potter. And I think they're called mandrakes, which is is very funny. Little skeletal, non-humanoid looking demon on the back of Maddie's head. With arms and legs. With arms and legs. Not like overpowering arms and legs, smaller, but like another being that is attached to the back of Maddie's head. Weaver also explains that this is a parasitic twin because he's not developed enough to even be a conjoined twin. Like they don't have separate systems. This parasitic twin is surviving because of Maddie's body and he's feeding off of her and they share the same brain. Meanwhile, Maddie is zoning out in the jail cell and is being bullied and intimidated by the other cellmates. They're all beating up on her. There's a tussle. There's this inner cut where they're trying to fight Gabriel in back of the old videos, stating that Gabriel is capable of hijacking her body to use for himself. In a callback to It's Time to Cut Out the Cancer, we come to find out that they tried to take as much of Gabriel as they could away from Maddie to ensure her survival, but they couldn't get everything. They couldn't get everything. And what they could not get, they pushed into Maddie's skull and shut up inside of her. Because again, they shared the same brain. So for the sake of Maddie's survival, they couldn't get everything away from her. So now we're seeing 
thing that there's overlap between this Gabriel figure and this Maddie figure. They share the same body. Meanwhile, as this is happening, we see the tension rising in the holding cell that Maddie's in with all the bullying and the negative comments. And then all of a sudden, we see the transformation where Maddie changes from herself to Gabriel. And this moment is wild. We see the back of her skull open up. Gabriel's face peek through and then her limbs turn around and twist and contort so that they are now situated to be facing backwards where Gabriel's face is facing and now Maddie's face is being worn on the back as opposed to Gabriel's right so like that explains why the movements we saw were so unnatural because the limbs are literally like twisted around yes And Gabriel starts beating the shit out of everyone. And this is another one. Grab your shot glasses. Like, I cannot count for you the amount of compound fractures that are in this scene. (laughs) Literally, do not drive home. No, dude, this is, I'm so scared. (laughs) Um, But this was also a moment too, even though this was so absurd, the action sequences in this film are incredible. Yeah, you don't zone out from them. You're invested the entire (laughs) time. So she's wrecking shit. And finally, oh, should we call, should we say Maddie or Gabriel? All right, Gabriel's fucking shit up. Okay. And frees himself from the jail cell by beating up a guard and reaching through and grabbing his keys and freeing himself. Meanwhile, Sydney is trying to call Dr. Shaw and giving him the 411 that Emily is Maddie and Gabriel is also Maddie and Gabriel's also Emily. Meanwhile, while this is happening, we see Gabriel going into the record room to get his black gloves, his cloak, and his weapon back. I love that he's a very concerned about his accessories. I want my outfit. <laughs> and then he goes berserk on the cops and it's fucking awesome. I'm like, that's the thing. I understand that Gabriel is taking over Maddie's consciousness, but I also want to know what classes Gabriel was taking in his little submersive like brain space where he knows how to fucking fight like this. Because it's not like Maddie's this judo master. Yeah, true. Like, where does Gabriel's strength come from? Where does his know-how come from? But he's fucking people up left, right, and center. My favorite little bit is that while there's a bunch of dead cops around and nobody can take him down, Kakoa and Regina are trying to run away and he fucking yeets a chair (laughs) 50 feet across and like knocks it into the both of them, knocking them both down. And he's throwing things backwards. I'm like, bro, your (sighs) accuracy. Gabriel, you could have been such a good athlete. He could have been. He had so much potential. So while he like runs out the front door, we get Winnie, who's been hiding in the background and tries to call 911. She's like, why am I calling the police? (laughs) (laughs) The police are pretty fucked up right now. They're pretty fucked up right now. But she tells Shaw that she'll stay with Winnie, who is seriously injured, while he goes after, I guess, Maddie? No, he goes to the hospital because they also realize that the woman who was held captive in the attic was Serena. Is Serena the mother. Shaw is on his way to the hospital because that's where they think Gabriel is heading. Meanwhile, Sydney gets to the hospital first. There's this cop that's trying to like block Sydney from getting into Serena's room because she's under protection. But then Gabriel fucking detonates his pacemaker. Like the pacemaker in this guard. Yes, because he can fuck with electricity and pacemakers are electric. Also, so is like parts are like electric. Yeah. What the fuck? Fucking nutty. I wonder if there's a kill count on this movie and if so, where that pacemaker explosion would rank because that's kind of original. I feel like they (laughs) certainly covered it for the podcast. I don't know that there's a kill count on it. Okay. Um, But that would be very funny. I feel like he he would think that's very funny. (laughs) My close personal friend, James. (laughs) So Gabriel goes after Sydney at this point. They have now made it into Serena's hospital room and it looks like Sydney is about to be completely ended by Gabriel. But all of a sudden, Serena wakes up 
and looks at Gabriel and apologizes to him. She says that she's so sorry she should have never given him away. Quote, you were my son and I should have loved you no matter what. This disarms everyone for long enough that when Shaw arrives, nobody notices and he shoots Gabriel slash Maddie and that incapacitates Gabriel enough. But then he comes back at Shaw and stabs him by throwing his golden knife across the room and getting Shaw right in the shoulder. Gabriel immediately goes for Sydney again, but Sydney is trying to appeal to Maddie, who we know is sharing consciousness, at least to a certain extent, with Gabriel. And she says to Maddie, he's the reason you lost your babies. He was feeding off of them. Ah! Which I mean, that to me, of all the plot twists, I was really interested for that plot point to come back. Of course, because at this point, we know Gabriel and Maddie are sharing consciousness. Obviously, Gabriel has taken over Maddie's brain at this point and is enacting this violence. But the fact that even though Gabriel had been asleep this whole time and was reinvigorated by that head wound we saw in the beginning, the fact that he was still there to some degree and feeding off of her fetuses, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. But it's no use. Gabriel ends up shooting Sydney and moves to suffocate Serena. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. The room starts to shift around Gabriel and we see Maddie is there. She was fucking playing tricks. She had overpowered Gabriel, it seems like, because of her sister's words and calling her to consciousness. And we see her symbolically lock Gabriel away in a mind prison as she takes back control over her own brain. She then helps Sydney out from behind the hospital bed she was previously pinned behind. Sydney is like, I don't know how you're going to do this because this bed is freaking heavy. But Maddie's like, it was always my body. If he was strong enough to do it, so am I. So she moves the bed aside. They share a sisterly moment where Maddie says, blood or not, you will always be my sister and I will always love you. We see Serena, who is also still alive, looks on the two of them smiling, and the film closes on the sound of an electrical buzz coming from a hospital lamp. And that's the movie. Dude. Dude. (laughs) I don't even know what that was. I don't want to call it fun. Oh, it was fun. It was so fucking fun. It was so fun. I had a fucking blast watching this. This was amazing. So going to some post-plot trivia... Ingrid Bisu's fascination with medical anomalies led her to read about Edward Mordake, which inspired the Gabriel character. Edward Mordake, sometimes spelled Mordrake, is the apocryphal subject of an urban legend who was born in the 19th century as the heir to an English peerage with a face at the back of his head. According to legend, the face would whisper, laugh, or cry. Mordrake repeatedly begged doctors to remove it, claiming it whispered bad things to him at night. Mordrake died by suicide at the age of 23. Oh my word. We've seen images like this with Voldemort in Harry Potter. It's not the only thing, but that's where I found it interesting that the little like skeletal babies in Harry Potter are also called mandrakes. Mm. So I was like, oh, interesting. That's probably intentional too. So Gabriel's physicality was performed by Marina Mazeppa, who James Wan discovered after she appeared on America's Got Talent what? for her contortionist work. Oh my gosh. According to Juan, there's not a lot of CGI used. Mazeppa really performed everything backwards. That is impressive. And I love that a woman was performing Gabriel's physicality, which makes sense because we know he was sharing a body with a woman, but I love that. 
In terms of Gabriel's actual face, his face was mostly practical. According to the effects supervisor, Ivan Bisquets, Gabriel's face was a fully articulated animatronic mask that was attached to the back of Annabelle Wallace, as well as some CGI to create depth around the head wound and to make Gabriel more expressive. There was also prosthetic limbs used for the inverted look and a parasite puppet for Gabriel in the VHS portions of the film. And then talking about some themes. So this comes from a Yahoo Entertainment interview with James Wan by Brett Arnold. On the intentional feminist themes, the article writes, newly minted horror icon Gabriel and all the insanity that surrounds him may have nabbed all the headlines and generated all the memes during the film's initial release. A year later, it's the film's more thematic elements that hit particularly hard. That's because beneath all the horror movie spectacle is a movie about the control men crave over women's bodies. And in a grander sense, Malignant is about the repeated traumas that the patriarchy regularly inflicts upon women and how that manifests in their physical bodies when left untreated. Juan credits his female collaborators, including his wife and executive producer Ingrid Bisu and screenwriter Akila Cooper, for adding that timely perspective. Conceptually, my wife Ingrid brought it to me, Juan tells Yahoo Entertainment. Ingrid is really fascinated by medical abnormalities, and she brought me this evil twin idea. We think of the evil twin thing, and we think of it as a joke, right? It's more of a cliche joke that we make fun of. Oh, my evil twin did this, and so and so. But Juan, Bisu, and Cooper took that germ of an idea and developed it into a movie that blended scares and social commentary. Even though the movie has all these crazy over-the-top gore and prosthetic effects, Ingrid has a really sort of feminist bone to her. And so the idea of women having control taken away from them comes from her, Juan explains, pointing to an explicitly thematic moment that didn't make the final cut. At the end, we initially had this scene that I thought was a little too on the nose. Madison gets her body back and says, it's my body, it's my body, it's my body. That really sums up how we feel collectively, and that was very important for Ingrid, Juan continues. You can have all these crazy, horrific things in it, but at the end of the day, it is a story about a woman and her evil brother trying to take control away from her, and she has to wrangle and fight to get it back. That was very important for us, that the film had something to talk about and wasn't just cool effects. I love that. Again, like the idea of the evil twin being morphed to show the twinship of men and women and and like the toxic relationship that it seems like they have over women's bodies and men making rules about women and, and how they're supposed to exist in their bodies and the trauma that women have to carry around with them either because of violence inflicted on them by men or even just laws inflicted on them by people who do not have a feminine body or a female body. Again, I I always love seeing how horror takes, again, a trope like this, the evil twin, and turns it into something so different and new, but also relevant to what is currently happening. We also know, like, James Wan obviously is a directorial genius, but I really like that he obviously gave credit where credit was due in terms of it being his wife's idea and trusting Akila Cooper to do the screenwriting, being like, this is a story about women's autonomy, and I'm Mm. going to let them do the heavy lifting and give them credit where credit's due when it comes to conceptualizing all of that. And he's like, I'm going to make Gabriel cool, but, like, you guys... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to make Gabriel cool. I'm going to make Gabriel cool, but you guys figure this out. (laughs) So then I was just having some random thoughts around the elements of this story that are different than the things that we've seen before. So this is me just kind of going off on a tangent. I find it interesting that Gabriel is acting as a metaphysical and arguably at least partially supernatural manifestation of trauma that still actively feeds on Maddie's wellness. We've seen beings that are physical embodiments of emotion, like the Babadook representing grief, beings that physically feed off of said emotion for their strength, Freddy Krueger and fear from Nightmare on Elm Street, or physically feed off a person's wellness to increase their supernatural ability, Insidious, Dalton in the Further. 
Gabriel's presence is an interesting one, being that he laid dormant for years and years, but was actively hampering Maddie's wellness unbeknownst to her by taking her unborn children's lives to feed his strength. This is not unlike trauma, which can lay dormant for periods after the bad thing occurs, but can be reinvigorated by a triggering event, like getting your head smashed into a wall. Not only is Maddie confronting the loss of her husband, negotiating that loss against the abuse he put her through, then experiencing the utter despair of losing another child, she's navigating the loss of her identity completely as she recalls the truth around Gabriel and experiences further loss of autonomy over her body as Gabriel continuously hijacks it. She regains this autonomy in the end, but even then she admits it's temporary. But now that she knows what she's up against, she will know how to handle it when Gabriel rears his uglier head. This is not unlike folks who are navigating a cancer diagnosis, claiming small victories while living with the anxiety that something beneath the surface may continue to feed on their strength and grow back to dominance over time. Yes. And I love that you connected it back to that cancer imagery. I mean, this movie is called Malignant. Yep. And there's a lot of talk around Gabriel with cancer rhetoric, like it's time to remove the cancer. You know, him being at this point something that is in Maddie's head as if he is a tumor of some sorts. I also really like the idea of that head imagery as well, like especially with the themes of re-emerging trauma that you mentioned, you know, that's something that's in the head, it's in the mental space. And so it is interesting that we see that trauma come back with that physical moment where her head impacts the wall. So it's that physical imagery that is mimicking that internal headspace that she finds herself in because of all of these horrible events that happen around her that are emotionally igniting grief and the need to process the traumas that she had already been going through with the exception of this childhood trauma that she had somehow pushed down. And then that begs the question, like, can she never have children because Gabriel will always be there? Mm. Like, is to sacrifice herself to feed Gabriel every single time? Like, is this just a truth that she has to negotiate again about her identity? Like, she wanted this identity as a mother, and now that's not something that she can have exist within herself because to be her is to be Gabriel? That is a really interesting point. It is interesting seeing this movie that's about women's bodily autonomy, which always brings to my mind conversations about abortion and abortion rights and healthcare access and things like that. But then seeing this woman fighting so hard to have a baby. And it does make me wonder about what you said regarding her identity. Is she struggling to find her identity with this parasite feeding on her fetuses? Or are we looking at a woman trying to find her identity in a society that makes women feel like they can't be a woman unless they bear children? Is that an angle as well? And who is a woman if she cannot bear her own children? Even though that is very common for a variety of different reasons. You know, not all women can have their own children naturally. And that is a reality that I feel like a lot of women are made to feel less than because they cannot do. And it seemed like a lot of her motivation was wanting to feel that intimacy and that blood connection. But now that she realizes that like Sydney's her sister and she has access to her birth mother now, like it doesn't seem as much of a priority. But I also like that this movie kind of exists in the same realm as like the Nighthouse and Babadook where like Gabriel isn't vanquished. Like you can't Mm -hmm. cut him out. Like it's something that you have to live with and negotiate and suppress and continuously battle with more informed perspective on how to take care of yourself so that it doesn't overcome you. Mm -hmm. Like in each of those movies, we always see hints that it's coming back or it's not vanquished. Like the bad thing doesn't go away. It just becomes easier to face. 
Obviously, she's aware of him now. So how does she ensure that he's not gaining strength? Like, what is it that he feeds off of? You know? Mm, That is a good point. It seems like once she learned the full extent of Gabriel's impact, she was able to understand how to overcome him. And honestly, it's giving education. What can education bring women? It makes them aware of maybe more systemic issues at hand that they hadn't really thought of or education about their bodies or other experiences that people have around them, right? When you live in a bubble and you're denied education about your body and your life and what you are experiencing, it leaves you without a lot of tools that can help you overcome it. But as soon as she realizes where Gabriel is coming from and the full extent of the havoc he's wreaking on her body, she is able to learn how to fight that. It's like she knows what areas to channel. She knows what tools are necessary. I think Gabriel is going to be super fucking fun in Villains March. <laughs> Gabriel! <laughs> Gabriel was a very interesting villain. And a villain that honestly, I never really got used to. It's interesting too, because obviously I understand why they had to use the spooky sound waves, because if Maddie were to speak, yeah, Gabriel would be speaking through that. But again, like the electromagnetic influence was never explained. I don't think it has to be. I think it works. And we are supposed to see him as like a semi supernatural being. It's just rad. The movie's fucking <laughs> awesome. I'm so happy we covered it. And James Bond does not disappoint. Most no, of the time, at least. Not. Oh, yeah, most of the time. <laughs> Especially this time. Yep. Cool. So that's Malignant. We still have some things coming at you over the next couple weeks. If you want to stay in touch, as always, please make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Also, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com if that suits your fancy for anything else. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.